The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise in banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. It's September 7 in Central America and let's say you're in El Salvador and you think, well, I need to buy something. But what you don't know is that the country you're in, run by a right-wing populist politician called Nayib Bukele, has just declared the currency, the official currency of El Salvador, will be Bitcoin. So what do you do? Do you try and find some Bitcoin and how would you use it? Well, it turns out, of course, if you're in El Salvador, the first thing you need to do is download the e-wallet called the Chivo, which apparently in Spanish means cool. Trouble was, of course, the Chivos didn't work. They weren't on the platforms properly to download for your smartphones. And before you know it, there were protests, there were riots. The Bitcoin machines that had been put in place for the changeover to Bitcoin as legal tender in El Salvador, which were designed to give you cash money, uh, ironically in US dollars, uh, they were of course torched and it was a right mess. But it was really interesting to see what would happen if the currency of a country, the sovereign currency, actually was a cryptocurrency because it sort of crosses the species barrier in the world of currencies from something created as a libertarian dream, a thing that was independent of the state, of the central bank, that was limited in the number of Bitcoin that will ever be in the world. And its protocol was independent of laws. It was like seasteading with money. It was the idea that you could be independent of the sovereign. But what would happen if, by the nature of the cryptocurrency being so freaking useful and fast and efficient and stable and a good store of value, what if it became the official currency? Because a currency is really just a lump of trust between a society, all of those people in the society, and the government. Those people who you put in charge to run society and to pass the laws and to own a central bank which organises and regulates the banking system and the supply of money so that you trust that the money will be there. We take for granted in New Zealand and in many places in the Western world, we take for granted that a currency will always be there, that it will be relatively stable, that it is useful in electronic form to pay for things. You know, we wave our phones and our 
our pay waves and our pay passes at terminals these days and beep and suddenly the money goes from our account through a bank, maybe through a credit card company and then on to the cafe owner or the shop owner in some way. Someone's clipping the ticket along the way. And we believe this is stable and a good idea. We just take it for granted. It never occurs to us that it would ever change. But in some countries where that relationship of trust between the government and the governed, those people who are, you know, the subjects, that relationship of trust has broken down completely. You've had a dictatorship, you've had riots, you've had wars, revolutions, and people really don't trust the people in charge. Uh, New Zealand is not in that case, of course. In El Salvador, they were. And when that relationship of trust breaks down, people often turn to whatever whatever the world sees as the most reliable currency. And in this case, now, it is the US dollar. And that's because the US currency has really been the premier currency of the world since the end of the Second World War. I could spend some fun time talking about Bretton Woods and then the eventual um, collapse of the gold standard in 1971. But essentially, it's been the US economy, the US military, the US government, the world's most powerful economy and democracy, and the most long-lived large democracy that has had that power. So that when people in El Salvador or Afghanistan want to transact, they have a bit of paper or maybe an uh, amount of money in an account which they can pass between each other, which there is a relationship of trust. It's going to be there. It's a store of value that isn't going to evaporate overnight. And why do I think that? Because it's run by the US government. They're the ones with the nuclear power (laughs) aircraft carriers. They're the ones able to project their power anywhere in the world at any time. In fact, the US dollar is one way in which that power is projected. So, for example, when the US wanted to get anything done in Afghanistan or they wanted to fix something, one of the first things they flew in after the troops with the guns was the C-130 with the pallet loads of packets of US dollars, which were then handed out to get the currency flowing again. It's one of the reasons why Afghanistan is in such a mess at the moment is that the Americans have pulled out. And as they've done so, they've pulled out their cash money, the paper as well as used the uh, American control of the global financial system because through the US dollar to apply pressure. So whenever the US government wants to really make a nuisance of itself with Iran or North Korea or China or Afghanistan, it essentially forces its banks and the global banking system to stop dealing with that country. And it's a very effective tool. That's true power. And so whenever you have a change in the arrangements for currencies, who controls it, uh, how it's managed, that's a really interesting thing. And for a long time, there was no debate. It was central banks in these countries controlled the currencies. You had to work through them in the private banks that were regulated by them. That's been the way of the world really up until the last five to 10 years. Since the global financial crisis and the way that central banks globally use their power to print money to stabilise financial systems and in many cases to bail out banks that had done bad things or made mistakes and in many cases use that power to print money to effectively inflate the value of assets held by asset owners, that has sort of not only changed the amount of money in the global economy but up to the tune of $23 trillion, it's forced some people to think, gee, 
what if the value of that currency wasn't reliable anymore? Maybe America may not be the largest economy. Maybe its ability to project military power is not there. We've just seen them booted out of Afghanistan. And maybe I should use some other form of currency. Now, for a long time, everyone thought, well, that's not possible. There isn't anyone with that sort of power or projection or connection to the peoples of the world who could do that. Until now, of course, with the likes of Facebook and Google and Amazon and Apple having relationships with billions of people, along with the ability to uh, store data, to understand who you are in an algorithmic way, and because they're incredibly well-resourced now, huge cash piles, hundreds of billions of dollars, they could be in a position to, in effect, replace a government and offer a currency, an electronic currency that you could use your app on your phone. Perhaps it's an Amazon dollar or a Facebook dollar. In fact, Facebook, a few years ago, launched a thing called Libra, which was going to be its own version of a currency, what they call a stable coin. So it's a cryptocurrency which has a direct relationship to the US dollar or maybe a basket of currencies. And the idea was that this would be a currency controlled by Facebook and people would use their accounts on Facebook to trade with each other. And sounds fun, sounds useful. However, central banks understood in their bones that this gave the potential for someone else other than the government to control the currency, to have true sovereign power. And it would mean that anyone who was a subject of that currency, who used that currency, who chose to put their eggs in that basket, if you like, that this was the one true ring of the global economy, a thing that you could use to buy goods across borders, not have to pay big clips of the ticket to MasterCard or the banks or the uh, currency transfer company, and it was really efficient and it was fast and um, you could see it on your accounts and maybe you know Facebook or Amazon or Google could start operating like a bank, lending you money because they knew exactly how good you are at spending the money or how much money you got saved or where you lived or the colour of your skin or whatever it was. They could really understand you and do a job of a bank much better than anyone else. So the, the, the invention of Libra which never actually got off the ground, by the way, in part because of the panicked reaction of regulators globally, the potential invention of Libra really forced central banks to think, we could lose control of our own currencies here. What are we going to do? We need to create something potentially that has the utility of a cryptocurrency but is controlled by a sovereign government with politicians elected and a democracy and all of those sorts of things. So instead of having a unaccountable, maybe not benign dictator running a country's currencies, you could have a hopefully accountable democracy running your currency. So over the last couple of years, central banks all over the world, including in China, have looked at building their own central bank digital currencies. And in the last month or two, our central bank, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, has issued a discussion paper talking about what would we need to think about if we were to invent our own central bank digital currency? How would it work? Could it work in tandem with the existing currencies? Would you have a bank account with the Reserve Bank of New Zealand? Could it be uh, exchangeable for other types of money? 
Could you have the government use these accounts to pay in benefits or for people to pay their taxes? Would it be something that you had an app on your phone and you simply paid money to each other by tapping it or, or pushing a, a button with the exact amount and uh, identifying who it was you were dealing with and pumping the money across, as you've seen with some other countries who have invented these sorts of apps? Would this mean that our banks, who have very profitable businesses, effectively keeping track of everyone's money and lending money to people and keeping it in savings accounts and making sure it's always there, would they still have their businesses? And would it be fair if a central bank effectively took on its, its own banking system? Uh, would it also open up opportunities for small fintech companies to effectively plug into the APIs that, for example, the Reserve Bank set up so that we could disconnect ourselves from the banking system and all of those profits that they make along alongside MasterCard and Visa. That's what we're looking at this week. Could New Zealand have its own central bank digital currency? How would it work? And would it allow a central bank and the government to start doing really interesting things, A, to create competition for the banks, reduce the cost of financial services, allow the creation of fintechs, and potentially allow a really easy way for a government to pay lots of money really fast to lots of people in a fair, transparent, and easily reversible way, because we've had to do that a few times in the last 18 months. And would it be better to have that option of having our own central bank digital currency than relying on Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg or Tim Cook or whoever's running Microsoft at the moment. Is that a better way? That's the discussion that the Reserve Bank wanted to start. This week, I talked to Ian Wolford, who is in charge of the cash at the Reserve Bank and is doing some deep thinking about central bank digital currencies. We have a good old chat about the pros and the cons and where to next and why it do it this way. And I also talked to Janine Granger, who's the CEO of Easy Crypto, a New Zealand-based and fast-growing crypto exchange who's really familiar with how cryptocurrencies work and um, has her own views on uh, whether New Zealand should have a central bank digital currency. That's this week, and when the facts change, I'm Bernard Hickey on the Spinoff Podcast Network, brought to you in a partnership with KiwiBank. To find out more about these central bank digital currencies, acronym alert, you'll hear this a bit, CBDC, I went to talk to Ian Wolford, who is the head of money and cash at the Reserve Bank. And he's just issued, along with the rest of the bank, a discussion paper about central bank digital currencies. And I asked him, where does New Zealand's Reserve Bank slot in amongst all of the work that the world's central banks are doing on this? Conceptually, the idea of CBDCs has been around for a long time, like 20 years or so. Uh, but it wasn't really until the last several years when you had you know, developments in blockchain and private sector, crypto, stable coins, those sorts of things that the big central banks got, got really exercised. There, you know, there are statistics around, we, uh, and we quote them ourselves, you know, uh, BIS statistics talk about 80% of central banks researching CBDCs, and I'm sure that's true, and then it, it, it changes just about every week, but roughly 50 to 60% of central banks experimenting. There's a, I'd say there's a, 
a wide range of what that experimentation means. Mm. I think for some central banks, it's still at the playing on a desktop with a sort of a um, simulation, which is a form of experimentation, through to a lot of work behind the scenes, some of which is now um, getting more publicly known. I mean, the big central banks are really quite advanced um, on the technology side and doing lots of work and experimentation. We're not, we're not at that we're not at that point. We've been talking about the, the concept just from a, from a watching brief general education um, perspective back um, since about 2017, I think mm-hmm. on our website there's a yep. few papers um, on that. But over the last year or so, we've, we've got a lot more serious. So mm-hmm. you might be aware what's, of... The, what's driven that, do you think? What, what, uh, well, two, two, two things, or a few things, I guess, in a way. Um, so over the last several years, there's been a lot of work on the future of cash, right? So you've got declining cash use, um, and that had led to a, a policy position that that was something that the central bank needed to do something about. So about a year ago, uh, the Money and Cash Department was formed. That it was quite deliberate to, to call it the money and cash department because it's a broader concept and it brings in things like digital currencies, central bank, uh, private, uh, private digital money, stable coins and, and the like. Um, one thing I would say that, and I don't want to overstate this, but one thing I would say where a, a couple of points of difference you have a lot of central banks around the world, as I've said, looking at CBDCs. And you have a much, much smaller uh, number of central banks starting to look at uh, declining cash use and the future of cash. As far as I'm aware, we're the only one that's taking a more holistic approach to this. So we're coming at it from a kind of a central bank money, money and cash system perspective. Mm. And that's driving some of our thinking, which I think, again, are some slight points of difference. So for example, if you go and read academic articles about CBDCs, one of the things that people always uh, agonise over is, well, what's that going to do to the banking system? What's that going to do to the banks? And the BIS has a set of principles that talks about sort of do no harm uh, type, you use slightly mm. different language, but yeah. that, that kind of concept, of do no harm. I think where we're coming from, as you look at it from from both the cash and uh, physical central bank money and digital central bank money perspective, you know, there's a few things that are driving us that I think are a slight point of difference. One is, one of the big concerns on the cash side is financial inclusion and people mm-hmm. being able to transact uh, in a way that they, so some people are reliant on it. Other people aren't reliant on cash, but like to have it there. But there are some aspects of cash around Anonymity, the ability to do peer-to-peer transactions, you know, etc. There are there are features of cash that what we're looking to do with a CBDC is, is replicate that. All oh, right. One of the complaints or concerns about central bank digital currencies from the you know libertarian crew is, well, you know, this is just central banks looking to take control of the 
the flow of information and um, know where everyone's spending their money all the time. It's the state. I couldn't be less interested in how you're spending your money, Bernard. Um, I can tell you, tell you that now, but um, that, at least from an RBNZ perspective, that is not where we're, where we're coming from. I mean, what we want, and back to the system... So um, many flat whites, it's embarrassing. <laughs> Uh, from the system um, point of view, you know, we don't particularly care if people go into a shop and pull out five bucks cash, a CBDC card, or a FPOS or scheme credit card. What we're interested in is uh, an efficient, innovative, stable, trusted monetary system. Mm. Um, now, that kind of system approach, I think one of the ways that manifests itself is. Some central banks are experimenting on what they call wholesale CBDCs. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you could argue we already have a wholesale CBDC. So you have banks have, the settlement banks have digital balances of legal tender in in our account. When they talk about wholesale CBDCs, they're talking, um, there are various experiments that are being done, but that's that's just using uh, blockchain to to deliver that same kind of functionality. But the system approach, you know, uh, that pushes us to think more about the retail CBDCs because it's about giving people uh, choice and choice to use central bank money. Um, Now, a lot of people won't um, particularly understand. They'll think, well, I already have uh, an FPOS card. I I use um, digital money. What's the difference? Well, one of the differences is this is legal tender. The money in a CBDC account is a direct claim on the government. So you don't have the credit risk of of a bank failing, um, and you potentially have more functionality like peer-to-peer transactions and those sorts of things. Now, a lot of those are design details Mm. uh, that are yet to come, um, and we have some big questions to to work our way through and how we structure those things. The other dimension in thinking about this from a system and thinking about it from the why are we here? What is the central bank trying to do? Is really back to this, it's trusted, it's efficient. And one of the things that you can do with a CBDC is help to drive innovation and efficiency in the system. Mm. You know, you could probably go and talk to some tech firms that are sort of champing at the bit, trying to get more genuine open mm. banking, more access through APIs, more functionality. Now we can actually directly influence that either by the infrastructure, the way in which we construct the CBDC, how we interface with tech firms. So when we talk about innovation, it's not just innovation of a CBDC existing, it's the innovation that a CBDC can drive. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, what's the problem you think it needs that needs solving here in New Zealand? I'd go back to the, the inefficiency, um, mm-hmm. the, the efficiency argument, the innovation argument, uh, financial inclusion. There are some people that are um, unbanked. There. Are, mm. um, Do we know what that number is in New Zealand? Or? Uh, well, es- estimates vary between sort of one and uh, I think there's a World Bank study. It's footnoted in our paper. One percent. Yeah, the, uh, um, the international estimates us at about one percent unbanked, and then we have six percent um, oh. reliant on cash. All oh, right, because it's much lower than other countries, right? Yeah. Mm. Now, the, the, of course, at the same time, you've got banks withdrawing um, from the rural set, rural oh, yeah. locations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the banks 
would say, well, what we would like to see is people pivoting to to operate digitally. Yet there are some that are unbanked, um, and so there's a there's a kind of a potential inclusion, geographical isolation. It's understandable in a way why banks are closing branches and and trimming costs. But what does that do to the people uh, left behind? So. I know we're talking about CBDCs, but we're also quite interested in the cash side, yeah, yeah. and we're also interested in the, the efficiency of. Um, um, so, of so how does the Reserve Bank think about this, you know, potential tension with its, um, I wouldn't call it customers, but it's the people that regulates who might jump up and say, "Hey, you're trying to eat our lunch. That's that's our job." Uh, well, I think when we talk about innovation, um, you know, we make the point in the in the CBDC paper that we seek to avoid unnecessary disruption. Right. Not that we seek to avoid disruption. Banks play a number of roles. They do maturity transformation and they do, you know, credit origination. They've bolted on all these other um, payments type mechanisms. Sure. Um, and some of those some of those bolt-ons are pretty costly. Have you made um, an effort to sort of measure the efficiency dividend that's possible here? Or? Uh, we're we're doing work on that at the moment, oh. um, and some of that will come out through the next paper. But we make the point in the paper that you know what we're interested in is uh, providing New Zealanders, as as I said, you know with. Um, with stable, trusted, efficient payment systems, not trying to protect incumbents uh, who often have uh, incentives sure. against innovation and mm. lowering costs. There are network effects going on here. Yeah. You know, you've got infrastructure, um, digital and physical, and you want people to use it. There are network effects. Mm -hmm. The fact that there might be some impact on banks, the issue for us is that that impact is measured and not destabilising. You know, we worry about from a financial mm. stability perspective. I think you really need to draw a distinction between the transition path and the steady state. Sure. And I think you can easily make an argument that CBDCs will be welfare enhancing, but you need to be very careful mm. about what those transitional uh, arrangements look like. So it's not, it's not all about unfettered innovation. You know, we're, sure. not, we're not simply saying you need to open, yeah, open up everything and free slather. We're sure. worried about financial stability sure. and, and we're worried about the unregulated um, tech firm startups purporting to be money. And, and we're also worried about monetary sovereignty and the role of central bank money. Mm. You know, and historically, you've talked, we've talked about money and you have this, it's a means of exchange, a unit of account, a store of value. That's kind of the traditional way of thinking about it, and that's well understood. But what's less well understood and less widely un uh, known is that it actually acts as a, what we call a value anchor that really underpins modern banking systems. So you, you put your money in your bank because you trust that you can, that, that that money will be there. And when you use that money, you know what it's worth. And what provides that value anchor is the stable New Zealand dollar. And a really good example of understanding, people say, well, what does it matter if you don't use cash? But a really good manifestation of this is, even in developed countries, with deposit insurance, if you have concern about a bank, like Northern Rock or whatever, you will see queues at the door and people want cash. Sure, yeah. Because it's a, it's a legal claim on the government, and you know what it's worth, mm -hmm. and you can use it. So it has sort of transactional relevance.
Um, and so from our perspective, whether it's digital or physical, we're sort of less concerned, but we want people to have that confidence and ability to to mm. choose. And in theory, it could, would create some resilience as well if there was exactly. some sort of private banking yep. network problem. Mind you, that also creates some risks for the Reserve Bank too, doesn't it? You're having to provide a service directly to the consumer. Yeah, I mean, and that is one thing that banks raise um, mm. in some of the discussions we've had with them. Well, you know, would the Reserve Bank want to be running a call centre? Well, <laughs> you know, a lot of their call centres aren't run out, mm. out, of, out of New Zealand. To me, that's a second order issue because you can structure these things in different ways. And there is this fundamental first question, which is, are we having a direct relationship with the consumer. Mm. Have you come to a position on this yet? No, no, no. We just, what, what we've done is we've, we've put on the table this concept of a CBDC and here are the pros and cons and here's how we're thinking sure. about it. This idea that you could use a central bank digital currency as a way to help with unconventional monetary policy. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's not a Trojan horse or anything like no. that. That's just simply saying, you know, um, at, at the moment, monetary policy operates, you know, via, uh, you know, our open market operations onto the impact of the price of money for banks and then through banks into the price of borrowing and lending, etc. So it's mm-hmm. opaque and diffuse in a way. Whereas, you know, if everyone had a bank account, if, you know, the government might want to drop helicopter money, for example, directly into accounts. Um, there are other functionality that having a direct relationship with the public, uh, for example, uh, deposit insurance is coming in. Right, one of the big issues around deposit insurance is uh, speed and efficiency of payout. If everyone had an account, um, <laughs> that payout would be instant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when people say, "Well, what's the use case of a CBDC?" There's there's a few dimensions to the use case. That's that's mm. kind of the key point here. Is is one of the um things to think about, uh, there's the risk that suddenly Facebook wakes up one day and says to every user in New Zealand, here's, here's 100 Facebook bucks which are tied to the US dollar or whatever it is, yep. um, go for your life people. Yep. <laughs> you yep. can set up your, your account with Facebook and we can be your bank too. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly the risk and you know that's that's driving the big central banks around the world um, and, it's, and it's driving us. Um, you know, I mean, the US numeraire currency, um, they're, they're worried um, in terms of loss of monetary sovereignty. We're, we're worried as well. You know, uh, if you had sufficient scale, um, that would affect the efficacy of, of monetary policy and the ability to have monetary settings, mm. you know, consistent with your, your economic environment. So that is a that is an issue. That, that's why you walk a, we walk a little bit of a, you know, we're laying out the kind of the, the opportunities and, and the risks. And some of those risks are around, around the sort of scale. You know, we have private money currently. Um, there are all, all sorts of stored value cards and, you know, things that operate in the economy, but, but none of those affect monetary sovereignty. And, and just thinking about um, just the, well, the the legalities and the logistics, do you have a sense of what are the legislative or regulatory hurdles or issues that have to be dealt with before you got anywhere near that? Yeah, we, we, we're not at that stage, and obviously we, you know, and, and we say in the paper 
clearly before making any you know more concrete steps, we would be consulting um, uh, government, seeking further legal powers, those sorts of things. Yeah. Some of that stuff around sovereignty is yeah. quite big, really. I yeah. mean, there'd be a, one party in parliament, at least, ACT Party, who'd say, you know, you're restricting our freedom to invent our own currencies if we want. You know, maybe I want to reject the sovereign currency. Why should the Reserve Bank, which is a powerful body, um, be inventing its own uh, currency uh, to um, get, yeah. get in the way of a, of a private organisation like a bank, which is, you know... I mean, that's a, that's a... Well, we have legal tender already, yeah. and what's happening is that legal tender is getting used less and less and less, and that's where you get into this whole... You know, we need to protect uh, the value anchor, the, the role that central bank money plays. Sometimes people conflate the RB issuing a CBDC uh, with the RB getting into the business of banking. Th these are different things. Mm. You know, uh, banks do maturity transformation, credit origination. We're not talking about taking over those. And no central bank that I'm aware of really is, is, is talking at that end of um, the spectrum. They're talking about the legal tender central bank money and keeping it relevant. So there's that keeping it relevant, which I would say is a global central bank defensive play mm. against the innovations and the stable coins and the, mm. the DMs, etc. We tend to put, I think, a little bit more weight than other central banks on the innovation side and yeah. catalyzing um, innovation. Because you're right, there's some pretty frustrated fintechs out there and the banks seem to be um, foot-dragging would be one criticism. Well, turkeys don't like, you know, don't like the oven too hot, do they? <laughs> And um, uh, the other thing I'm curious about is um, the whole integration with money laundering and know your customer and all of that stuff. Do you think this is one of the solutions to this, or is it not? Well, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a uh, solution. I mean, uh, you know, any CPTC would need to meet all the relevant legal um, regulatory sort of uh, requirements. Uh, and that's one of the concerns around uh, stablecoins that, that are you know, globally largely un, unregulated. There's a whole array of things in order to have a, to, to get more confidence in some of those competing forms of private money. Mm. Yeah. You get a lot of tech firms, right? They come along, they've got this tech um, product. Or we've, we've built a platform and we shouldn't be regulated. Well, it's an open question about how they should be regulated and whether it's the same regulation or something that's more tailored. Uh, but there's quite an uneven playing field there. Banks are regulated and providing this form of private money just because you're built on a tech, uh, on, on, a, on a piece of uh, distributed ledger technology, that doesn't in and of itself mean you ought not to be regulated if you're in that sort of business. And I think you need to separate the, the, pro the product from the technology, mm. you know. Yeah, and having having the ability to have APIs and things means that you could unleash that innovation. Yeah, well, this is another example of the uh, what we mean by innovation and being mm. catalytic, right? You um, you have this open banking's been kicking around for a while. You've got an API centre that is necessary. You're going to need some kind of API centre. Mm. Should that be run by Payments NZ? It's a open question. Mm. It's back to the turkey setting the temperature <laughs> of the oven. Right.
So there we have Ian Wolford, the Head of Money and Cash at the Reserve Bank, talking about APIs. And what he's talking about there is application programming interface. This is a bit like a big plug at the back of the Reserve Bank that all the fintechs could plug their systems into to get the data they need to build competing financial services for the turkeys, the banks, who, of course as turkeys do, don't like to vote for Christmas, and they like to control the settings on their own oven. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. We know what the regulators starting to think about, but what about the experts in the private sector? I talked to Janine Granger, who is the CEO of Easy Crypto, which is a crypto exchange growing like topsy at the moment. Dozens of employees just raised $17 million and really starting to get into the business of understanding how New Zealanders use crypto. And she's quite a deep thinker on what might happen next in the world of central bank digital currencies. And I asked her about what she saw in that sector. I'm curious about central bank digital currencies, and there's a real scramble going on around the world. I suspect more scrambly elsewhere than here, but a scramble to maybe catch up with the Chinese, but also uh, to have another option in case you know Facebook or Amazon um, decide to become banks and start offering their own mm-hmm. types of currencies and become effectively sovereign in their own right. Um, uh, what do you think about these various moves to create central bank digital currencies? As an overarching concept, I think it's absolutely a given that it's going to happen. I mean, our world is increasingly digital, right? So it is a no-brainer that currency will go digital. The fact that currency isn't really actually digital, like, I mean, you can look at your online banking app and see numbers in there on an electronic format, but it's not digital, it's electronic 
not digital, which has, you know, there's a bit of a distinction there. So I think it's a, it's a given, but the question is, for me is around what does that future state look like when we do have central bank digital currencies, which we will, are they interoperable with each other? So can you sort of quite easily exchange the New Zealand CBDC for Australia and other currencies? Are those exchanges happening by, you know, through government mandated means or can anyone get in there and build the pipes to help, you know, I guess create open banking internationally? We haven't really succeeded at open banking in New Zealand, so I'm not sure how much I have faith that it will go internationally, but we'll see. And then the second question I think is around who else is playing in that space? So we've got, and I think sort of you looked at this a, a few months ago, um, Bernard, in your article on, you know, the who else is coming up in this area. And you've got those corporations that are looking at creating uh, digital currencies, which will obviously have big profit impacts for their corporations and also big questions around privacy and access. You've got the fully decentralized finance aspect in terms of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that are completely decentralized, open source, democratic, and then you've got the central bank digital currencies. And my sort of, if I had to place a bet on what the future looks like, I think we will have all three of those. And I think the challenge will be around the interoperability between them. And if it is possible for anyone to be building those connections and pipes, that makes it for seamless transfer between those different types of networks. A lot of the um, determinants of success of the various crypto and central bank digital currencies will effectively be almost marketing exercises or faith-based systems. <laughs> and you could argue that's all any currency is always, Absolutely. is, is, is um, an article of faith. Is there an opportunity for New Zealand, which is seen as an honest broker, a um, trusted third power, to sneak up between all these other big guys and um, become the one that is trusted and is safe because often the question of which currencies are the ones people trust and use are often quite closely connected with politics and geopolitics mm. and economics and who's got the biggest aircraft carriers and all those sorts of things. Do you think there's an opportunity for New Zealand? I think there definitely is an opportunity and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but I, I think, is it right that the New Zealand dollar is the third most traded currency globally? Is that right? It's in the top 10, 9th, 10th, 11th, but yeah, no, you're right. It punches above its weight, as it's so, so, so. Yeah, so I mean, that, that to your point indicates there's an element of trust and sort of stability there with the, you know, how the Kiwi is perceived internationally. I think to the question of opportunity though, it's really a question of can we execute on that? Like, is there a vision and is there ability to execute on it? And as you're probably aware, the parliamentary um, select committee inquiry into the nature and um, risk of cryptocurrencies has been going on. And it sort of seems that we've got a a lot of work being done by different agencies. I mean, RBNZ's done um, a bit of work, IRD, FMA. Now, you know, the, the consultation that RBNZ's doing around central bank digital currencies shows that they are actively thinking in this area and they've got a team working and looking at future of money. So there's definitely um, intention there to be considering this stuff, but can we execute on it and do we have a government that sort of will back that and um, divert resources away from what's probably more pressing immediate issues into something that's a little bit futuristic and maybe a bit scary? And that's where I'm not sure that I have the answer on that and that's, I think, where it's probably most likely to, to go from intentions to... Um, yeah, and, and you must keep an eye on what's happening around the world. Is there any one country or um, central bank or um, cryptocurrency which is the one to rule them all? No, I mean, I do think we will see a convergence um, and a consolidation in crypto assets. Like at the moment, there's 
well over 10,000 different cryptocurrencies out there. And this is a question I get asked quite a bit as to, well, what's the value of a cryptocurrency if anyone can just go and create another one? And I think the analogy here to a company is a good one. Like, I can go and set up a company on the company's office this afternoon, but that doesn't mean that Apple's shares are going to devalue at all, you know? Availability of something doesn't, um, gener- you know, doesn't necessitate that it's going to have any value. Um, so I think, though, you know, there's thousands and thousands of currencies out there. I believe we will see a consolidation towards what are the ones that are most used, and I believe we'll see a a couple of key areas. You know, there will be remittance currencies, which won't be Bitcoin. There'll be store of value currency, which possibly could be Bitcoin. There'll be infrastructure currency and a couple of other, like, key use cases. Um, Why do you you say Bitcoin won't be the um, remittance currency? So... If you read sort of any of the criticisms about cryptocurrencies, they generally tend to refer to all of the shortfalls of Bitcoin um, in terms of energy usage, um, cost of transactions, speed of transactions, you know, limitations on how much can be pushed through the network and delays and that sort of thing. These these are all Bitcoin-related criticisms, and it's very much like, you know, analogous to mobile phones. The very first, you know, mobile phone came out in, in the 70s. It weighed over a kilo. It, you know, you can only get 30 minutes of talk time, then you to charge it for 10 hours and so that's kind of what Bitcoin is like it's sort of that equivalent of it's a bit slow it's a bit old it's a bit clunky I get very frustrated seeing these comments over and over again in the media about how cryptocurrencies will never take off for XYZ reason because it's just the same as saying smartphones can't ever work because the first mobile phone looks like you know this old slow clunky thing um, so while Bitcoin is old and slow and clunky and very often the first market isn't the winner, like, you know, MySpace is, is gone, Google wasn't the first search engine, Apple wasn't the first mobile phone. However, Bitcoin has something that's a bit different from those and that it's got the longevity and it's got the brand and it's got the trust. So my, my, my two cents is that I think Bitcoin will be around for the long haul as a store of value, as a place that, you know, 21 million, it's capped. People trust it. They know it. It's been around for, I don't know, 13 years now without any flaws or errors. And I think it will just keep continuing to hold that space as the number one trusted currency, but definitely not the payment currency because it is not good as a payment currency. It's not fast, not slick, not cheap. Um, but same reason that you don't go and shave off a little tiny bit of gold when you buy your coffee in the morning. Something that's a store of value isn't necessarily going to be a great payment um, mechanism. No, no, I, I do need to get a new cheese grater. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Janine Granger there, the CEO of Easy Crypto. Thank you to Janine and also to Ian Wolford from the Reserve Bank and his team. They've put together a fascinating paper on CBDCs. That's this week on When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey on the Spinoff Podcast Network, where the podcast comes out weekly, brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. And because it's weekly, we need you to click the subscribe button so it just comes through nice and easy and you get all the good stuff every week on When the Facts Change. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Is it mad that the world burning is not in our, like, top three concerns? You thought bad news was done, but I'm back with more. In Alice Sneddon's Bad News Saves the World, I finally address the climate crisis and explore why no one cares. Watch it on thespinoff.co.nz. I can see the anxiety (laughs) starting to emit from you. The Spinoff Podcast Network.